Well, welcome to Conversations. I mean, conversations. Stories from the faculty of the Department of Communication Studies at UNLV. I'm here, Kevin Stoker. I'm the, uh, uh, my, my co-host, David Norris, and I are here with Dr. David Gruber. We're happy to have you with us. Um, Dave, good to have you on board. And a pleasure as always, my friend. Good. <laughs> well, we've got David here, and we, you know, I'm, I've been excited to talk to David because not only does he do fascinating research, but he's, he's got, had an interesting career. This is a guy who's been a globetrotter at the same time. I know you went to North Carolina State University. You got your PhD right. from, from North Carolina, North State. Carolina State. Yeah. And so you were there. What made you then decide to embark on this international journey of reflection and analysis and serving as a professor in places like Hong Kong and Copenhagen? Well, I, I almost didn't because I went to Hong Kong for the job interview and I got deathly ill that day. And I, I was uh, by myself and I came back and I told my wife, Lindsay, I said, I don't know if I can move to Hong Kong. I went there for one day and I got deathly ill. And she said, we're going. And I was like, you think it's going to be great? She was so excited about it. She teaches English as a second language. And so she already had good opportunities there. I had good opportunities there. Uh, what happened or the reason I was out there in the first place is because my advisor was Carolyn Miller at North Carolina State, now distinguished retired professor of rhetoric. And she knew my dissertation and knew my work. And she says, yeah, I think this job would be perfect for you. And I think it'd be a great place for you and your wife. And so I applied. They called me out. I went, got deathly ill. Uh, otherwise, it went, went, went well because they offered me the job, I guess. But I spent most of the time in my hotel room staring out at this gigantic city. I'd never lived in a city like that before, so it was a huge change. And that just launched the journey, really. Wow, what a great story. So you ended up going there, and had you been abroad before? Uh, yes, I'd been abroad before, but I, I really hadn't traveled much. And in fact, to go on that job interview, I had to get my my passport rushed because my prior passport had run out. That's how long it had been since I'd been out of the country. So this was a it was a huge change. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, to go from North Carolina to Hong Kong, tell me what it was like. What was the um, the cult? Was there a kind of a cultural shock when you got there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But for me, it was mainly because there's so many people. I mean, if you've been to Hong Kong, you know that it's like everywhere in Hong Kong is like the most crowded place in Manhattan. You know, you're elbow to elbow. You're, you're touching elbows with like 10,000 people just to get to work. You're getting shoved onto the train. So that's something that I had to get used to, you know, in the culture shock. And other than that, I mean, the foods and stuff, I fell in love with those. So it wasn't that hard to, <laughs> as far as the culture shock goes. And the university system in Hong Kong is all English. So they, they have an English-only university because of their legacy with the British rule. Right. And so that, there wasn't much transition there. I worked with people from all around the world. I worked with Hong Kongers and Chinese and uh, Australians and lots of Brits and me. And we were just all there trying to make it all work. And it, it's worked well. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like a real melting pot. Yeah, it was. And that was, uh, I loved it. Yeah. So it was really great. You have this really global perspective that you bring with you to Las Vegas. You've been here for a few months now. Talk to us about kind of how that international experiences kind of helped you as you settle here? Uh, well, it has helped me because we've moved a lot. So we moved from our, our stuff has gone around the world. We went to Hong Kong and then to New Zealand and then to Denmark and then to here. So every time you move, you have to, I've realized you have to be flexible. You have to take time to know how the place where you're going works. And even though we were moving back home, we were anticipating a reverse culture shock kind of thing going. So we were still prepared to move here and sort of be ready to not expect everything to 
work seamlessly and go our way. But I'll tell you what, the most exciting thing I, I'm excited about is coming back is being in Las Vegas in this in the sunshine. I was like, I just craved the sun. I, after living in Denmark, I, you know, Denmark has this terrible winter that lasts for like nine months a year and it's terribly dark and I'm just soaking up the sun. So that's been the best thing about moving back. And so, the, you know, the fall weather is probably, oh, this is wonderful. This is not fall. Yeah, this is this is perfect. It's great. I'm going, leaving my office to sit outside at lunchtimes if I can just to get the sun. I feel like I'm vitamin D deficient after all the four years in Denmark. It's just you just want the sun. You know, it, it is quite a journey. Tell me about, you know, as you went from New Zealand and then to, to Copenhagen, what, you know, kind of give us an idea. What was What were some of the things you learned along the way? Uh, you always learn something when you go overseas. You know, if you've traveled, it's always a good at learning experience. I think I've taken something away from each uh, culture. You know, m- freshest in my mind is the Danish culture, and I think they do a lot of things that I really, they're a really family or- family-oriented place to be. Um, there's small things that you observe that you want to take on and bring home. So if we got invited over to our neighbor's house, uh, all the in all the family comes in together, so they, they 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 wait in their cars down the road until the other family members arrive, and then they all come in at the same time. And then the, you shake everybody's hand when you enter, and all the kids greet you. So you sort of do this little ritual, and I think that's nice. You know, um, they they value this thing called huga, which I don't know if it became popular in the U.S., but there was books going around Europe about like d- how we should value Danish huga, which basically is the Danish word for coziness. It's about being together. It's about creating small spaces with candlelight. I mean, it's the most huga if you're in together with your with your good friends, you're drinking wine, and it's a terrible snowstorm outside, and you're in a cabin. I mean, that's huga. Right? It's about this closeness. So they find ways to create this closeness with other people, and I think that's something that I've really cherished and valued there. And in, in New Zealand, I mean, the outdoors. I think in, in Denmark, they enjoyed doing outdoor walks too, but... When you go to New Zealand, I mean, it's a place like no other. You know, it's you're, you're out in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean, and you are just get to enjoy just the, all the the beautiful sceneries and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you take something away from it everywhere you go. So, from New Zealand, then you took kind of the outdoors and being in the outdoors and everything else. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and um, you know, I think that New Zealand has also done a really good job with the. Um, with the multiple languages that the university uses. So they've incorporated Maori, the traditional people of New Zealand. So they incorporate the language into the university system and they encourage you to, you know, uh, respect and learn the Maori traditions. And so that's not overlooked. And I think they've done a good job at that there. Uh, Obviously, there's still some tensions between Maori people and the settler communities that came in, you know, one to 200 years ago. But, you know, you learn about different cultures and you learn to respect them for what they bring. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Okay, so how about Hong Kong? Hong Kong, oh man, I don't know. I just learned so much about Hong Kong. I mean, you learn about just the whole Chinese system and I mean, everything. I What, what did I take away in particular that I loved about Hong Kong? Uh, other than the food, I think that, um, yeah, I think that Hong Kongers are really good with their own international perspective because they're in an interesting political situation with China and they... Um, they have a lot of so many international travelers come in and out of, out of Hong Kong. I think something that's really impressed me about um, people who live in Hong Kong is how open they are to other cultures and how um, hospitable they are and tolerant they are. So I think that I could see that there when I work there and 
you know, someone who was there as a foreigner working in their country, I always felt welcome. So I tried to take that too. That's great. David, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your research. This podcast is geared towards people who may not be familiar with the uh, faculty here. You're a new faculty member, and we'd love to hear about kind of what are you doing now that, you know, you're here. I mean, if, if there are new doors that are opening, but maybe what have you been doing and what are you really curious about? Oh, what I've been doing is uh, the field of rhetoric, you know, which is traditionally understood as the field of studying of persuasion. And, you know, a lot of people in the field of rhetoric study speeches or political speeches and how politicians persuade us with the words they use, the way they frame the issues and all that stuff. But what interests me about rhetoric is um, the role of the body in being persuaded. So I've done a lot of work on the rhetoric of neuroscience and the neuroscience of rhetoric. So the first one is like looking at why we adopt neuroscience, how the metaphors in neuroscience help us to communicate the findings and how we understand neuroscientific work. And the other one is how neuroscientific findings can inform the long history of rhetoric going back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, because I think there's, you know, the role of the body in understanding why we're moved to do this or that or why we, uh, why we behave in the way we do, we can learn a lot from neuroscience. So I try to play on that intersection. So that's really what I'm interested in. What, what in, if you look at that more specifically and say, what would be a good example of this that you've looked at in your research? I've done a lot of articles on this finding called mirror neurons, like M-I-R-R-O-R, not M-E-R-E, <laughs> the, uh, the mirroring neurons. My dissertation started that work where um, basically my PhD dissertation was how this finding on mirroring, mirroring other people. So if you're sitting like this, I sit like this, and you nod, I nod. Yeah. Uh, there was a finding in the early 90s that suggested that uh, we have some neurons in our brain that simulate our lived environment so that even though we are not uh, ourselves doing something, we simulate it in our bodies so, we kind of, so that we're able to understand what's being done. So they, one example would be if you watch sports on TV and you see someone do a great catch, and you imagine what it's like to have that great catch and your body gets excited, you know, and those would the, are the mere neurons acting. But what I, what I noticed when I started to look into this work is that people in different fields were interpreting this finding in different ways and using it differently. So my dissertation was about how robotics used it, how the phenomenology in the field of philosophy used it, and how rhetoricians were wanting to use it to inform their own work or to legitimize a theory they already had or to make a new robot. So I was looking at how neuroscience is used creatively across the disciplines, irregardless of whether they got it sort of got it right or got it wrong, you know. It was just about how it became a creative a, a creative resource, a pool that neuroscience was functioning in the disciplines to inspire people in their own fields to do something new. And that's what I was writing about and studying in the initial days. And that turned into a series of like, five different articles. How did you kind of get into this. I mean, obviously starting rhetoric, persuasion, and looking at that, um, what got you in this particular area? What was it? What was the aha moment? Um, well, the aha moment for mere neurons were some pieces written in the field of rhetoric that was using the mere neurons for theory. So I was saw that they became important to the field of rhetoric. You know, I said I'm interested in how the body reacts in a non-rational way, why we do things because of how we feel. And rhetoric has not prioritized, traditionally not prioritized the emotions coming out of the tradition of the Enlightenment where arguments and reasons and logic, you know, you give three good reasons and that should convince people to do something, that's been mainly prioritized. So when people who were theorizing the role of the body in persuasion were turning to mere neurons, that caught my attention. But my really, my aha moment was before that, um, when I was 
I was, I mean, prior to my PhD program, I, I was interested in writing. I took a master's degree in writing from the University of Southern California, so I was doing a lot of writing. Um, and I was uh, reading about writing, and I just was interested in how people are cra were crafting persuasive texts and the structures of text. And I fell into a discussion about neuroscience and the relationship to writing and how different people read, and it just got me interested in the brain. Uh, and I think that's probably not an accident because, you know, I also have suffered from migraines and so, so do a lot of people in my family. Um, I've had several brain scans and other issues with my brain. And so I realized sort of how important neuroscience is. I, I myself have been affected by, you know, studies of the brain. So I think that it, it caught my attention for those my own personal reasons, but also for just how much the neurosciences are influential in helping us understand human behaviors. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Well, maybe we can back up a little bit, David. Tell us a little bit about you. What led you to, I mean, you talked about your love of writing, but maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, who was David when you were, you know, pre-university, pre-PhD? Uh, what inspires you? Oh, I was a rock star. Ah, that's what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> well, I, my main hobby that I still try to do every day is play the electric rock guitar as loud as possible and drive my neighbors crazy. Uh, so that's what I do now to relax too. If I, especially if I'm writing, I have to take a break and play the guitar to sort of clear my mind out. Um, but not just any guitar. Not just any guitar. You know, it's, it's, yeah, I did it's not play the acoustic. Guitar. Yeah, the electric guitar. Yeah. So from my earliest days in my preteen eras, I always wanted to play the guitar, be a rock star. I think when I was um, maybe 14, I sold my junior high school saxophone which was too nerdy for me <laughs> i didn't like putting my mouth on the instrument i said like, i want an instrument where i don't have to like put my you know empty the spit out of the side of it or something <laughs> so i wanted to play the guitar and uh that was around the time nirvana was really popular i said i'm just going to try to learn every nirvana song i could so i found a guitar teacher who just taught me by listening so he said find find the songs you like listen to them try to figure them out and i'll give you help so I've actually, I don't know how to read music. I just learned to play the guitar when I was 14 or 15 by listening to a song and trying to imitate mm. it. And I've been playing uh, ever since. So that's what I was doing. Uh, I was not a very good student as an undergraduate, to be honest, because I was more interested in playing the guitar. Sometime around uh, after I graduated with my undergraduate degree, I went and worked in the film industry for a while. And somewhere in that time, I got more interested in intellectual ideas and philosophy and the guitar fell a little bit to the wayside. But I still play it as a hobby. I still write songs. I wrote a lot of new songs over the pandemic, so I'm hoping to record those soon. Maybe you could help me out with that. You got this great studio. We have, we have, we know, yeah. we may know a guy. Yeah. <laughs> we know a guy. Yeah. We have a performance studio as well, so that would work. Yeah, David, let's let's tell t tell me a little bit more about you. You mentioned that moment, right? That moment when kind of the guitar wasn't necessarily the priority. You started reading, and you know that intellectual side of your brain really kind of lit up. What was it? I mean, what 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 was that snap moment? Uh, well, I took a writing class at USC, and um, the professor made us read like, some of the classic philosophical texts, even though it was a class about fiction writing. So he made us read, you know, Marx, Freud, Nietzsche. I don't know who else we read. We read the big stuff, you know. <laughs> and the, his idea was that you need to understand how humans function in order to write convincing characters. So we were reading philosophy about human behavior in order to write fiction stories. And I think I saw the connection there to writing, as I was sort of saying earlier, and to rhetoric. Human be studies of human behavior from all kinds of different perspectives can inform you. So 
that that sent me down the trail. It's amazing. Yeah, and I had another great professor at USC who was a uh, who was a comedian in Vegas for years. He taught me how he taught us a comedy class, and he had us all write funny things and follow the thread and explain why they were funny and talk about humor. And I loved that. So it was my only connection to Vegas early on. But that guy's name was Shelley Berman. He's since passed away, oh, but I he was a great comic for many years, and also played the father in. Um, in that and what's that show with Larry that Larry David created after Seinfeld? He was in that show for a while. Oh, Arrested Development. Curb yeah. Your Enthusiasm. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's a great experience. Well, obviously, you got a lot of good influence there. Tell you know, I'm kind of curious. Tell us where you grew up. Kind of your you know, tell us a little bit about your your background there, your family. Oh, okay. Where did I grow up? Well, I moved around a lot. Not surprising, right? So <laughs> I kept that tradition up. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in. Some of the Carolinas, so going back to the PhD program was sort of a return to the Carolinas. I also grew up in Florida. I consider sort of Vero Beach, Florida to be my hometown. It's on the East Coast. It's the former home of the L.A. Dodgers. They since moved where their spring training camp was, but that was a great place to be a kid with the Dodgers in town every spring and uh, family on the beach. So we still go back to Vero Beach, Florida a lot to see friends, and that's where we do our vacations. Um, I also lived in Ohio. I lived in Southern California. And now I live in Las Vegas. There you go. So, yeah, the family comes from the newspaper industry. My mom and dad were both, uh, my dad was a publisher or, um, you know, managing newspapers. And my mom was a reporter at various levels in different newspapers. And even though she's retired, she's kind of lying that she's retired because she still writes a column for her local newspaper. A humorous column that unfortunately sometimes contains my stories. And I said, Mom, why are you, don't write about me. Why she, she calls me like, I think she calls me Handsome Son. She doesn't use my name. She says, my handsome son's moving to Las Vegas and I get to go visit him. You know, she writes this whole column. People in the hometown think it's hilarious because she shares all of our family secrets. And she writes about her husband who's called Hubby. And uh, her granddaughter, my sister's daughter, is called Delightful Granddaughter. So she's a she was also a stand-up comic for a while when we lived in the Carolinas. She used to go to downtown Charlotte to do sort of comedy about my crazy family back, you know, like the Roseanne Barr style of comedy back right, in those days. Right. I was too young to really hear her routines. But, uh, yeah, my mom's an outrageous sort of uh, extroverted writer. And my dad is kind of like a sensible businessman with good advice, you know, kind of stuff. The perfect kind of parents. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there's a balance balance. there, isn't there? (laughs) Maybe you can share with us a little bit about if I were walking into your classroom for the first time, you know, for a semester-long course, what can I expect about you as a teacher? You, I would say, I'm going to stay on your tail. But I know you look like a troublemaker. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, I try to work through activities. I mean, mainly, you know, if I'm teaching my class, I, I think that having fun and laughing is probably one of the most important things because you're way more likely to engage the material and remember the material, I think, if we're just having fun. So I try to lead a loose classroom, a fun classroom. I try not to talk and lecture too much. I mean, you need, you need a little bit of input, but basically uh, we try to do things in the classroom. Today we were looking at different works of art and drawing. I was teaching visual rhetoric today in my rhetoric class for undergraduates. So how to analyze images from rhetorical points of view. So we were like looking at different paintings and drawing lines on them to understand this method of analyzing images. And so I try to do act, try to do active things. Next week we're going to take a little field trip around campus to analyze the di- some of the different buildings on campus with the same methods. So uh, that's what you can expect. Hopefully it's fun. I don't know. They don't always have fun, but I can only do what I can do. Well, tell us about your family. 
Tell us about your wife. How'd you how'd you meet your wife? Uh, she was sitting at my table at college. I went to the cafeteria and for some weird reason I just I kinda like why I eat oatmeal every day. I only I was telling you earlier that before we started the podcast that yeah, I only eat oatmeal every morning and I'm obsessed with it. But when I was in college I was sitting in the same place in the cafeteria every day. And I because it had this beautiful window and this view, so I said I would get my whatever that terrible pizza they used to serve us or whatever they cooked up and then I would go sit in this at this one table. And I went there that day and for some, you know, I was there by myself. I don't know, my friends, we always sat at the same table, but no one was there. So I just took my tray and I went to the table and there was a group of girls sitting there. And this one girl in the chair that was facing the window. So I was like, ooh, that's a pretty girl. I don't know. I can't can't sit there, though, because she's with her whole group of friends. You know, you know, you, it's hard to break into that. It's, it's kind of weird if I just came over. So I sat at the next table over and I kind of watched her as I was eating. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try to talk to her afterwards. So I, 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 I finished up quickly and I went outside the cafeteria, which we called the CAF. And I was waiting. And the, but she came tromping out with this huge group of girls. Like, tuk, 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 you know, they all stayed together. I didn't get to meet her. But back then, the college was small enough. You know, this was Biola University in Southern California. This It's a very small school. The school was small enough where they made this, like, yearbook-style thing where you could see everyone's picture was in it. And we had this um, bulletin board system where we could email it, just, you know, intra-university bulletin board system, uh, like AOL chat or something like mm-hmm. that. And so I found her picture in the book, and I was so lucky because in the picture that she had taken for the for the uh, school's yearbook, she was wearing a shirt that said South Carolina on it. And there was nobody in Southern in that school in Southern California from South Carolina. And I had gr- I'd grown up there for a period of time in South Carolina. So I just sent her a little message on the bulletin board, said, hey, are you from South Carolina? I noticed your picture in the yearbooks from South Carolina. I'm also from South Carolina. If you ever want to get together and talk, that would be great. And then at the end I wrote, or whatever, you know, because that, that was cool. She still laughs about that. Like the first message to her, I wrote, or, or whatever. But she responded, hey, and so it all worked out. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it it uh, it, pan- it played out to a whole. The, unfortunately, the summer hit right then, so it was a long summer of emailing each other over this bulletin board system until the next year when she came back to school, because I I didn't live in South Carolina anymore at the time. So then we met back up the next year that school started, like the first week of school, we went on our first date, and we've been together ever since. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, that's a great story. So, you know, keep an eye out for who's sitting in your seat. You never know. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) David, is there anything that we haven't asked you that you think would kind of give us a little bit of light into you or your classes or your research or just, you know, kind of what one can expect if they were looking for a mentor or just an advisor, somebody who is coming to UNLV? Oh, well, I don't know. I think that um, I am... Well, I guess maybe one thing, if you're talking about advisors in UNLV and students and stuff like that, I'm really interested in students who are willing to take risks at putting together, putting strange things together. I think a lot of people felt that it was a, it was a bit strange to use the traditions and concepts of the field of rhetoric and try to put it together with contemporary neuroscience. But I like I like taking the disciplines and mashing them up so that we don't get all in these silos that, you know, the arts are so separate from the sciences and we can't talk to each other or learn from each other. So, you know, I would love it if we had some science students or some biology students or someone who wanted to cross over and learn about communication and come into the MA program in communication or someone who just comes from a wildly different background but can see the connections to a field like the studies of persuasion. Um, That's what really gets me excited. So that's maybe one thing I would say. 
you know, our it, our stuff got lost. It was uh, like three months late arriving here. That's and right. And then customs decided to pull it for because, of course, that's the way it, it works. But uh, I think I concluded they probably pulled our stuff out because I'm a, I'm also an obsessive rock collector, and I probably had rocks in bags under our clothes and boxes, and that probably didn't look good on the customs X-rays. So I'm guessing I caught shot myself in the foot there on accident. Well, it rocks. But, now wait. Well, I. You know, I've got to know about the more about this. What is this about rocks? What? Uh, well, I, mean, I don't know. You see, rocks rock is a rock looks lucky. Yeah, I don't know. I like to, I like to have a rock in the car. I have a rock, you know, a rock here. I like to have rocks around, so I'll bring the rocks in. You can see rocks. They're nothing special about rocks. They're just special to me. It's like that's a rock from a trail I was on, you know, ten years ago in Hong Kong. You know, that's just a rock. But I guess customs doesn't like it when you take rocks from around the world and and carry them. They're not supposed to bring dirt and something in. So I'm guessing that's why my stuff got specially pulled but all my rocks are very clean very safe and they're well packaged and they are now here in las vegas mm -hmm. from rock star to rock enthusiast that's right impressive i, I, I think we've got a title of this podcast don't we? <laughs> <laughs> i could have been a geologist yeah that would be exciting but you know you end up where you end up david thank you very much for taking the time to chat oh thank you for yeah. uh the interesting podcast and i look forward to listening to all the other ones as well that's great well thank you for joining us